This is Beyond BC, a podcast illuminating the professional careers and accomplishments for members of the Berkeley Carroll School's alumni community. I'm your host, Tim Quinn, class of 2005. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Radley Horton, class of 1990. Dr. Horton is currently a Lamont Associate Research Professor and Climate Scientist at Columbia University. His current research focuses on climate vulnerability, extreme weather events, the limitations of climate models, and adaptation to climate change. He serves on numerous national and international task forces and committees. These roles include co-leader in the development of a global research agenda in support of the United Nations Environmental Program on Vulnerability, Impacts, and Adaptation. He also served on the Climate Scenarios Task Force in support of the 2018 National Climate Assessment. Radley, thanks for joining the program. Great to be here. Why don't we kick off with just a, a kind of a high-level introduction to the work that you do as a climate scientist and how your career has evolved ever since you, since you started that line of work? My path to becoming a climate scientist was pretty tortuous. It wasn't obvious to me, certainly in my Berkeley Carroll days, that I would, I, I would become a scientist. But by my early 30s, I had completed a PhD in in earth science at Columbia, basically looking at things like how much is global average temperature going to go up, how much is sea level going to rise with climate change. And what the real sort of evolution for me over the last, say, 10 years or so has been to work much more directly with decision makers, whether it's New York City's government farmers, uh, people working on conservation issues, to try to really make the scientific information that we produce more useful. So really to link it to risk and decision-making. turns out that a lot of the work that we were trained to do as climate scientists in our PhD programs isn't that directly relevant. So it's been very rewarding to me to learn about what decision-makers actually need to know and what do they not need to know as they're trying to adapt and prepare for uh, some of these major climate impacts that are coming down the pike. A critical component of what you do is an education component. So working with elected officials who manage a lot of things, say for a city or jurisdiction or a state even, and educating them on the risk. Absolutely. A lot of decision makers have experience with uncertainty. They might have to plan, for example, for different budget outcomes, um, not to mention you know, crises like COVID-19, which you know, have, have surprised everybody. But we try to help them understand that there are some things in climate science that we know really well. Sea levels are going to rise. Temperatures are going to go up. But there are also these lower probability but extremely high consequence outcomes that we need to think about, like what's the worst case scenario for sea level rise? What if the jet stream, which brings us our weather patterns, shifts in really big ways, potentially ways that climate models can't even predict? So we try to sort of span that range. And and whether you're giving a decision maker the most likely scenario or these sort of potentially catastrophic outcomes depends a lot on them. What are they trying to manage? Do they need to prepare for the most likely scenario or do they, for example, have some critical asset that can't fail, such as a bridge that's going to last for 100 years or a nuclear power plant, you know, depending on what their decision context is, 
that's going to really influence the kind of science information they need. And for some decisions about how to adapt and, and make society less vulnerable, believe it or not, we don't really need that much climate information at all because no matter how much temperatures rise or, or sea level goes up, we're vulnerable today. And if we work, for example, to better protect vulnerable communities and, and just in general to have a more just society, that will get us part of the way, not all the way, to better protecting our vulnerable populations from extreme weather. I'd imagine that when you present some of your findings or research to officials who, who have this responsibility for then taking action, that the, the reactions may run a spectrum where some people will be very open to what you're saying and and kind of the tail risk situations that you've mentioned, and others may be more resistant. Is that something that you come across, or do you typically work with elected officials who have sought you out for your expertise? That's a great question. I think there's been a shift. I think, um, you know, I, well, first of all, I think being in the Northeast, uh, being in New York, it's much easier to talk about these these climate risks. There's not a lot of resistance to to climate change. And I think you know, the financial sector being so prominent here, there's a growing feeling that companies have a obligation that shareholders are expecting companies, for example, to disclose their vulnerabilities. So I think it's getting to the point where certainly we can talk about climate change with most communities in the Northeast, but not all the groups are there, as you say, in terms of wanting to think about worst case scenarios. They may be more from the perspective of, all right, we're ready to talk about climate change, but initially maybe just tell us if we get a lower amount of sea level rise, um, what might happen. And one of the crazy things about climate change is that even if we do get lucky and have a low amount of sea level rise and, and relatively little warming, even that is going to be a total game changer in terms of leading to far more frequent heat waves and, and coastal flooding. Just to give one example of that, you know, globally, we've only had about two degrees Fahrenheit of warming, but that's already been enough. It doesn't sound like much, but it's already been enough to shift things so that we now get twice as many record-breaking high temperatures as record-breaking low temperatures. And similarly, you know, globally, we've had less than one foot of sea level rise in the last century, which might not sound like much, but it means that places are having far more frequent coastal flooding already. So even if we do you know, have these low-end scenarios, they're going to have a profound um, shift on the risk profiles for, you know, for, for companies and, and various, various entities. Outside of the New York region, there is still some opposition for sure to these climate issues, but I think gradually it's, it's really diminishing. I'm noticing uh, a reduction in recent years in, in terms of the skepticism. You've traveled around the world. Are there certain areas where you say is ground zero for kind of measuring the impact of climate change where you see uh, kind of a previews of what's to come? Yeah. I mean, the, the scary thing is that everywhere changes are happening much faster than, than we thought they would, whether it's the climate shifts or ecosystems starting to change, crop yields starting to change. But I think in general, a lot of the tropical areas um, are places I would highlight where we're already seeing temperature extremes pushing crop yields far down faster than we thought. Um, we're seeing populations, you know, already having to deal with extremes of humid heat that make it difficult to, you know, work in the fields or, or, or be productive. And 
um, at, at various types of labor capacity. And it's not going to take much more warming to push those areas into a place where all the people with pre-existing health conditions really start to suffer and, and die at higher rates, um, where you start to see, as I say, crop yields dropping a lot. So our first concern, I would say in general, is a lot of tropical regions. And of course, those are also areas where we tend to have a lot of vulnerability, um, not as many economic resources to generalize, and a lot of governments that don't uh, provide as much sort of capacity to their to their population. So, so a lot of parts of the tropics really, you know, stand out, whether it's, um, you know, parts of Indonesia or, or um, Africa. It's one of the more, I'd say, dismaying, kind of disheartening, uh, or tragic, rather, I think is a better word, aspects of this, that some of the, the countries that are probably least prepared are probably the ones who are going to, who may suffer the most, at least initially. Yeah, you're seeing um, also a lot of coastal megacities forming, Southeast Asia, South Asia. You're having more people moving to these areas, these delta regions that are going to have very fast rates of sea level rise, you know, a recipe for a lot of suffering and a lot of issues that are going to extend internationally as well. You know, even if one were really, really jaded and somehow said, what do I care about people far away suffering? What do I care, you know, whether they were the big greenhouse gas emitters or not? Even someone with a totally selfish perspective like that, I think increasingly is going to be sort of forced to understand that we all suffer from these types of, of extremes, whether it's um, greater geopolitical insecurity, changes in food prices, uh, you name it. I think the, the days of being able to just sort of look in our backyard and say, how is climate change going to happen here are changing to where we need to you know, think about how we're all, all connected and, and all vulnerable to changing climate. But fortunately, you know, I do think there are things we can do globally to address this problem. It's, it's not too late, although it's getting close to that point. What I often think about when I consider the impact of climate change, I think back to war-torn Syria and how that caused mass migrations. Yeah. Do you see that as one of the kind of most visible or prominent kind of human reactions to climate change, this mass migration out of very vulnerable areas? Yeah. As you know, there's a climate change piece to the Syria story, or certainly a climate piece and years of drought. Yes. It's never just about climate, right? But this is um, sometimes the tipping factor or the factor that loads the dice in an otherwise volatile situation to something where people start to just decide this is unbearable, you know, not something that we can continue to do. And when you start to see that, that sort of unwinding, you know, it's very scary. And I think we're going to see it for a variety of hazards. We're going to see it in some of these coastal areas where even before the water actually arrives, at some point, I think there's going to be a shift in societal risk where people start to realize sea level rise isn't going to stop, you know, and maybe my house, for example, could start to lose value long before the water arrives, once the herd, if you will, um, realizes where things are, are heading. So you start to get to a point where we could see, you know, big shifts in, in where people live even before the water, for example, actually arrives. And then you start to get to a whole series of other questions like, even if this is just a small part of the city um, that's going to experience, say, sea level rise, what does it mean for the broader 
tax base, the ability to fund critical infrastructure for everybody, including our vulnerable communities that, for example, most rely on, on public transportation. So there's a lot of really thorny questions here. And um, it's not just coastal areas. It's not you know, just areas where maybe there's not enough uh, food. We're also, I think, more and more in the context of like wildfire, uh, starting to think about these the, about these issues of retreat and whether the risk is just too great to be able to fund uh, continued investment in these areas, but also the risk of loss of uh, of human life too, whether it's from that coastal storm after sea levels have risen or from that catastrophic fire. Um, and other of these risks we're, we're doing a lot of work on these days is combinations of extreme heat and humidity that are so terrible that really people can't function outdoors for long periods of time. So these are existential threats that are going to lead to people moving for sure. I tend to think of carbon and fossil fuels. I think about oil, gas, um, cars, I think about airplanes. What are some of the, the, I assume those are all still right, but are there any um, kind of uh, undercovered uh, culprits of causing climate change? There are. I mean, I think another important one is land use change. So things like deforestation, emissions associated with uh, livestock, for example, you know, by some estimates, those are responsible for 20, even 25 percent of our greenhouse gas wow. emissions globally. So those those are important. And then within some of the things that you you mentioned, like fossil fuels, some of those, you know, heavy industry, the coal use, for example, you know, it's for things we may not think about that much, but it's uh, it's the, the very heavy industries, uh, the mining, you know, eat up a large percent uh, of the emissions. That's, for example, why, you know, during COVID-19, you know, where we're going to see maybe for 2020 something like an 8, 10 percent decrease in, in carbon emissions for the year relative to prior years. It's a big reduction. But when you think about how much less flying there is and how much less driving you might have expected an even bigger reduction. I think the explanation is that a lot of that heavy industry around the world uh, uh, continues. Cement production is another um, you know, major, major source of, of warming. What are the other signs you've seen um, during the pandemic in terms of how the climate's been affected? And uh, what do you think that the pandemic has done to people's prioritization of uh, mitigating climate risk uh, as well? Carbon dioxide emissions, these invisible gas, happens from a lot of the same sources as the small particles, the, the soot, for example, that gets deep into people's lungs. So, you know, that's something we see coming out of coal plants. That's something we see coming out of the back of, of a car. Uh, but they have very different timescales. So those those small particles that are so devastating to our lungs, you know, what we call PM, particulate matter, 2.5 and smaller can actually get deep into the lungs and, and in some instances like cross into the bloodstream. We don't fully understand, but we're learning more and more about how, how dangerous these, these, these are to, to everybody. A lot of those small particles in cities have seen on the order of like 50% reductions uh, as we've seen some of these social distancing measures. So there you do see some immediate benefits because these particles don't last in the atmosphere very long. They wash out you know, the first time you have a big rainstorm. Uh, for example, carbon dioxide is a little different. You know, we are, I think, for 2020, you're going to see maybe an eight to 10 percent reduction in our emissions globally. But the problem is 
carbon dioxide lasts in the atmosphere for, say, 100 years or more on average, wow. each, of the, each of those molecules. So the analogy would be a bathtub, basically. Right now, globally, the emissions, um, essentially the faucet of that bathtub, are still going full steam. Even if you turn that faucet down by 10%, you know, by reducing our emissions, the, the faucet's still going like crazy compared to the drain, compared to the sink, the ability to uptake carbon. So even though the faucet's going a little weaker than it was, the key point is it's still much stronger than the drain. So the bathtub is still filling up each year. We still have more carbon in the atmosphere in 2020 than we did in, in 2019. So the takeaway is to really improve the climate situation as opposed to air quality, it's going to take years and decades of, of reductions. We need to, frankly, get to a world of 80% reduction in our greenhouse gas emissions um, in the next 10, 20 years, 30 years tops. So it's a major, major challenge to say the least. But I, you know, I think there's still time. You know, when we're thinking about the potential powerful levers for change, you know, a lot has happened. Uh, for one thing, I think people post COVID-19 have a new appreciation of, of risk and the idea that whenever something major happens, it can be very difficult to predict all the ways that we're going to be affected, right? Even if you don't get sick, the economic implications or the supply chain implications. So it's the exact same story with you know extreme weather events. So I think people appreciate, maybe people are going to appreciate their vulnerability to climate extremes that are happening more often after seeing all the ways we're vulnerable to COVID-19. But then where it gets really interesting is, is not just the risk perception, but the idea of the future we want and what solutions seem, seem practical. Are employers going to insist or are workers going to you know, be willing in most industries to, to, to work five days a week in the office in the future? Are climate scientists like me going to get on those airplanes, burning fossil fuels to attend conferences in the future? Are we going to expect those to be virtual interactions? Are our employers going to support, um, you know, not attending these these key conferences? And it extends, you know, even further. Let's talk about like commercial real estate. Are we potentially going to see companies making long term shifts and in, in their sort of feeling of whether they need that extra big office? So I think that. This could move the dial in terms of reducing emissions. On the other hand, we need to note that we're getting this emissions reduction from an economic catastrophe, and that's never the way you want to get the emissions reduction. We need to find ways to become more energy efficient, to use less carbon. That's going to be the key because we need to continue to have economic growth to have everyone on board. So the big thing to watch going forward Will we see those industries that are somewhere on the path to dying? We could argue about you know, how close oil and gas are, but you know, they're facing another headwind right now. And it's going to be very interesting to see whether we see bailouts for those kind of industries and reductions in regulation, or if maybe investors could be closer than we think to a point where they start to say renewables are the wave of the future um, and maybe that accelerating that, that shift in energy use. Often when there's talk of, say, the you know Green New Deal and big sweeping and ambitious proposals to address climate change through a restructuring of the economy, it's, it's highly controversial. Is the path forward really all about partnerships between government and the private sectors, NGOs, consumers? And in terms of kind of restructuring the economy, do you see it as something that can be inclusive? 
going forward, or will there be winners and losers? I think it's you know that that's the key point: finding a way to be inclusive. There are bound to be some losers, I think, and and but there's probably a much bigger set of people for whom change is just scary, and right. you know even if things maybe aren't going so well um, in some respects. The idea of a big shift is scary. So there's a kind of, you know, fear politics there. There will be some smaller groups who, you know, economically in the short term do do lose, you know, I think the coal miners, for example. But at this point, that's such a small population that, you know, investing in um, new job opportunities for some of those communities, for example, in the renewable space would be inexpensive and, you know, offer a much, much better future. I mean, there's far more jobs at this point in renewable energies than, say, coal or, or mining, for example. So I think it's going to be good for the economy to make these shifts, but we need to communicate with everybody to learn what their fears are, right? And it's not just the coal miners, it's small communities in, you know, New York State, for example, that are worried about energy in the future, whatever it might be. So I think having that inclusive dialogue is critical, building these positive narratives and helping people understand that the economics of renewable energies and new technologies can be transformational, in addition to the fact that we're obviously going to just reduce the risk so much, right? But it doesn't just have to be a story about risks avoided by not emitting gases. It can be about other positive gains, including circling back to the air quality issue that we talked about, right? If we're... um, using electric cars, we're not only going to have less carbon in the air, we're not only going to have, you know, emerging uh, jobs in the in the electricity and the battery space, we're also going to have better air quality immediately. I, you know, I'd imagine that, if, you know, in your role as a climate scientist, you're constantly confronting, uh, just given the nature of your, your job, you're confronting risks and there's this almost this feeling, at least as an observer from my part, of kind of racing against the clock because yeah. we have to reach certain objectives and goals, milestones before it's too late, quote unquote. Is there any part of your role where you're inspired by what you're seeing? And, you know, what, what have you found to be really rewarding? So um, working with students is um, incredibly rewarding, I would say. I work with senior undergraduates in, in, in sustainable development at, at Columbia and, you know, they're the ones who are going to have to sort of face the worst of the climate changes. And in general, they don't um, sort of stew over the over the depth of the challenges, although I certainly you know, respect people who, who do feel paralyzed by it. But in general, the attitude is let's get to work and, you know, just sort of bringing the best talent to bear to address these issues. And obviously, climate science is just just one of the ways. But there are going to be more lawyers in the future thinking about these issues. There are going to be more artists trying to inspire people uh, to think about these risks. And almost any profession, for better or worse, climate change is going to be a central issue increasingly. So I do get inspired by the fact that my students haven't given up hope and, and find ways to remain optimistic. And I guess more generally, it's true that climate change is happening faster than we thought. The impacts, whether on crop yields or public health appear to be happening faster than we thought too. And that's, you know, very depressing to be sure. But I also, you know, sort of tell myself that some of this solution space, whether it's the price of renewable energy coming down so fast or battery power, you know, getting close to parity in terms of price. I think these things are also happening faster too, which can be transformative in terms of leading us to 
reduce our emissions fast. When I think about young people who, when they're picking their first company, maybe even when they're picking what college they go to, I think increasingly are going to be asking, are you doing everything you can to not just be carbon neutral, but also to think about all your assets and your mission? Is it, is it going to be compromised by, by climate change? And as enough young people start to demand that of their future employers or the companies that they're going to be investing in, you know, I think we could see very, very rapid shifts toward, towards renewable energy. I'm not sure it'll be fast enough, but the faster we do it, the more likely we buy ourselves enough time for that transformative technology that does not exist today, but might in the future where we could, for, for example, pull carbon uh, out of the air. You know, these things that right now are totally far-fetched, but if we act as resiliently as possible to protect vulnerable people and do all we can with technologies today to reduce emissions, maybe we buy ourselves time for um, you know, a narrative that, that, that has some luck on our side. Yeah, I, I totally, totally agree. Uh, I think macro shifts in consumer behavior and kind of brought along by future generations will really kind of be the sea change. Yeah. Um, what are you focused on in your research going forward? I know you teach, but there, there must be certain areas that you're looking at now. Yeah. So we're doing a lot of work on these lethal combinations of extreme heat and humidity. And that's an example of what we call like compound risks or compound extreme events. Basically the idea that it's not enough to think about uh, individual events in isolation or individual climate variables in isolation. We got to think about correlation of risk. Um, you know, in, in the world of the future with climate change, our city is going to experience sequences of extreme events. You know, maybe it's the heat wave right after a hurricane has knocked out the power or you know, are, are we going to see correlations across space where in the same summer, multiple breadbasket regions around the world, you know, experience heat and, and drought? Uh, it's not enough to just think about one point in one time, you know, when we're starting to assess some of these systemic risks. So that's, you know, one thing we're thinking about also doing a lot of work on this, this idea of managed retreat that um, adaptation in place, for example, by you know, building a seawall or allowing the first floor of a building to, to flood may work in some places, but there are going to be some other places where basically going to be too dangerous to, to remain where you are or, or too expensive. Um, and in those cases, we are going to see more and more of these discussions about how do you get out of harm's way? Where do you go? Who decides? Who pays? How can you do it in a way that the most vulnerable communities, and as you noted earlier, the least responsible for, for emissions to date, aren't left sort of holding the bag as, as we see on unwinding in some of these, these communities? Radley, I could ask you questions all day. <laughs> but, this has been fun. Yeah. But we don't have all day. Thank you so much for joining the program. Thank you. And uh, I hope to talk to you soon and uh, kind of follow your work as you continue it. That'd be great. Radley can frequently be found sharing his knowledge and insights on various television, radio, and print media outlets. To stay up to date with his latest thoughts and work, follow him on Twitter at Radley Horton. Beyond BC is a production of the Berkeley Carroll School's alumni office. It's hosted and produced by me, Tim Quinn, and executive produced and edited by Jamie O'Regan. Thanks for joining us. And we'll see you next time as we share more alumni stories beyond BC.